Hello everyone, I'm Julie McDowell and the Atomic Hobo podcast is back. Back after a, a short break, I gave myself a few weeks off because um, we've had a real run of bad luck here at home. Starting I think with uh, my honeymoon a couple of weeks ago, which was down in Dumfries and Galloway in the lovely Scottish countryside. And for some reason, when we were out there in the middle of nowhere, supposedly enjoying all the peace and serenity, uh, I began to get very panicky. Something I've not had for a long time. I could feel my old panic attacks creeping back on me. I think it was the, the silence. It unsettled me a bit. My solution to the silence was to leave the TV on all night. So um, we went off to bed and left um, some random channel running all night, which was showing repeats of Taggart. And it was David who pointed out, this is hardly relaxing because in the middle of the suffocating blackness of the silent countryside, we would hear Taggart you know, breaking glass, sirens, there's been a murder. Uh, for those who don't know, Taggart is a, a Scottish detective drama. Uh, he's supposedly famous for grumbling, there's been a murder, even though, like, play it again, Sam, he doesn't ever actually say that line. But um, So that was my relaxing honeymoon, Taggart blaring all night because I was so anxious and frightened of, this, of the silence. So, as I was trapped in the countryside for a week, feeling frightened... Naturally, my thoughts turned to nuclear war, as they always do. And when I was um, out in the garden or sitting on the balcony, looking at all the lovely, quiet scenery, of course, in my frightened state of mind, I thought about nuclear war and how would a nuclear war look? You know, if if a nuclear attack was launched on the nearby, the nearest cities or military targets, this tiny wee patch of Dumfries and Galloway, where we were, would surely be untouched. So what would you see and hear and smell and feel if you were down there whilst nuclear war raged in the cities? So that's what I was thinking about on our lovely relaxing honeymoon. And of course that's what this podcast is going to be about, about the countryside. What was the specific civil defence advice given to those who lived in the countryside? And what were the unique challenges that they would have had to put up with? And don't we all do that on our honeymoon? That's what I thought was quite normal. It wasn't cocktails and sunbeds for us. It was Taggart at full volume and me listening out for murderers and wondering what a mushroom cloud would look like if it began rising up slowly from over the hills. Yeah, I'm bloody miserable sometimes, but that's how it was. So here is the podcast all about countryside and farmers and how they would have coped with nuclear war. Now, the situation for the farmer is uniquely horrible. Those who survived in the rubble of towns and cities at least have the small comfort of company. You're not going to be alone as you struggle out from under your propped-up doors and piled sandbags. There will no doubt be survivors near you, and in theory, there may well be rescue attempts and rest centres medical help and the delivery of food and water. Of course, if you've seen Threads or done any reading reading of nuclear fiction, you'll know that fellow survivors are probably, or could be your worst danger, more dangerous than the fallout, arguably, if they're desperate enough. But the fact is, there will be people there with you, but not so in the countryside. Farmers, uh, their family and any 
farm workers who've stayed around are going to be isolated. They're going to be completely on their own. But they don't have the freedom to do as the urban families are doing, which is to try to hunker down, stay in the shelter, pass the time with board games and comics, wait for some kind of vague rescue. No, the farmer has to get out there and get to work. And that's because Britain, like never before, will need its farmers to produce food. Currently, of course, and we know this a lot because of all the Brexit chatter in the news, Britain imports a lot of our food. So we can assume that after a nuclear war, we'd be importing zero. The ports would be destroyed, airports too. They're always high on the list of targets. But even if they were still functioning... Would our trading partners be in any position to export food to us? Wouldn't they be equally as ruined and damaged? So, if Britain wanted to eat, we'd need to turn inwards and look to our farmers to feed us. So the poor old farmer, after nuclear war, finds himself with a double task. Firstly, he's got to keep himself and his family alive, as survivors all over Britain will be doing. But he's also got to get out into the fields and do a day's work. And could there ever be a morning where you'd feel less like pulling on your boots and going out to work? In the atomic age, there might have been a reasonable expectation that rural areas would be safe. Of course, when you're studying these things, the most important thing to grasp is the difference, the huge difference between the atomic age and the thermonuclear age. Of course, when the hydrogen bomb came along, it changed everything because it's so unspeakably and unimaginably monstrous and devastating. But in the atomic age, there could have been a reasonable expectation that some areas would be safe, and that would include, of course, most rural areas. Blast and fallout from atomic bombs were relatively limited, but the hydrogen bomb, as we know, changed all of those um, assumptions The blast with a hydrogen bomb was now inconceivable and the fallout would be devastating and of course could travel hundreds of miles, drifting wherever the winds took it. So the hydrogen bomb means that nowhere is safe, not even the quietest, smallest, most remote, tiny wee farm. And of course, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I thought about this quite a lot a couple of weeks ago when I was down in Dumfries and Galloway. We were in a lovely old lodge where we could see nothing and hear nothing at night, and big rocky hills rose up behind the house. And I just couldn't help, when we sat out in the garden, thinking of nuclear war, I considered how far we were from the nearest city. In this case, that would be Glasgow. It was about two hours' drive away. And I just wondered what this area would look like if Glasgow was hit. The locals in this area, the nearest village being uh, Kipford. They would know a nuclear war had begun because Britain, of course, had a network of sirens across the country. If you want to find out more about that, look at the previous podcast episode called Attack Warning Red, which is actually my most popular one. So the people of Kipford and the countryside would hear the siren. They'd have the radios on, of course. Until the last minute, they would have TV on. So they would know that the bomb had dropped. They'd get radio and TV warnings, the same as everyone else and they'd hear the siren. They wouldn't have sirens on poles on their local police station or school. That was reserved for big cities, of course, and towns. Tiny rural areas tended to have 
um, a hand-cranked siren, which would have been operated by, say, someone of a trustworthy position, maybe the doctor or vicar or even pub landlord. Again, the Attack Warning Red podcast will tell you all about that. So they would still hear the siren, they would know it was happening. You know, they wouldn't just glance up from their work in the fields one day and go, bloody hell, is that a mushroom cloud? They would know. But after the bomb dropped, in the minutes and hours after it, what would they see? What would things look like? We can all imagine what things would look like in a city, of course. But what would they look like far out in the countryside? Would things look normal? Would things just tick along as before? At least until the fallout and the crazy, starved refugees arrived. But after the sirens had stopped and all the country silence resumed, would the birds still tweet? Would the sky still be blue? Would everything just look normal, which is inconceivable given that a few miles away or a few hours away in the city's nuclear war is raging? So when we climbed to the top of these rocky hills and looked north to Glasgow, or when we looked down across the Solway Firth to the Lake District, I just kept wondering, what would it look like it happened? What would you see from down here? Would you just see a silent mushroom cloud on the horizon, shouldering its way over the hills like a big lumbering monster? Or would the sky turn black with all the smoke? I couldn't help imagining what it would look like. So when I sat in my sunny garden with my chocolate hazelnut biscuits, or when we sat out in the balcony, I kept thinking of this. What would it look like? Well, according to a government civil defence booklet from 1958, and which was then made into a short film in 1961 called Home Defence and the Farmer, the countryside would look the same. To quote from the booklet, the countryside looks much the same. Nonetheless, there is danger in every place where fallout has come down. So farmers and country folk wouldn't be plagued with rubble and ruins and refugees at least not according to this film. After the bomb dropped, things look the same. The hills are still green, the cows still moo, and you still need to put your boots on and get to work. Here's a short clip from the film. Two days have now passed which you have spent in refuge. The countryside looks much the same. Nevertheless, there is danger in every place where fallout has come down. Some places will be so heavily contaminated that they will have to be completely evacuated. Farmers will have to leave their farms, and it may be some time before they can return. In other areas, limits will have to be set upon the time people can spend in the open. The civil defence authorities will tell you what conditions are like in your area and how much time you may spend out of doors. In that time, it will be all right for you to do your normal jobs, provided you take sensible precautions. Put on some outer clothes every time you go out onto the land. This will help to prevent fallout getting onto your ordinary clothes. Trousers should be tucked into gumboots, and you should wear gloves to protect your hands. Wear a hat and a scarf as well. If a job is dusty, the dust will be dangerous. So wear a handkerchief or scarf over your nose and mouth. Put cotton wool in your ears, and if you have any goggles, use them as well. Plug your ears with cotton wool. Some might say that's only too true. If you're expecting government advice to protect you from the hydrogen bomb, you may as well stuff cotton wool in your ears because you've really not been listening to reality. But if you look around after the bomb, 
you could maybe forget that nuclear war has happened, at least until the radiation arrives on the wind. But the message of this civil defence campaign was get to work. So it had to take a very sensible, hard-nosed approach. There was no time for trauma, fear, worry and horror. Leave that to the big softies in the cities, those big evaporated softies. Down in the countryside, we are made of tougher stuff and there's work to be done. So the film stresses work, work, work. And this is a big contrast to campaigns aimed at city dwellers, which, of course, as we know, tended to focus on stay calm, stay where you are, don't panic, remember your bank books and your bin bags. The reason, of course, for this emphasis on work and action for the farmer and his family is twofold. One, I suppose, is to avoid panic and breakdown, to avoid the countryside becoming as bad as the towns, with people perhaps rioting, stricken with terror and panic, anarchy breaking out, looting everywhere. If we can emphasise that things look normal, then maybe we can get people to behave normally. So we can get our farming communities up, get them going to work, keeping things ticking over as normal keep to routine, which is nice and soothing, and will fend off any anarchy, any screaming madness. The second reason, I suppose, is more practical and more obvious. After a nuclear war, Britain will need her farmers more than ever. The war has surely destroyed ports and airfields, as we said at the beginning, making the import of foods difficult, if not impossible. So suddenly, Britain will have no one else to feed her. It will need to come from the farmers. Feeding the population will be no easy feat when the country has been devastated by nuclear attack. Factories, of course, will have been bombed, ruined. Shops will have been stripped, both by panic buying and looting, but also by any supplies having been requisitioned and fallouts will be tainting much of the ground, the air, the water. So whatever the farmer can coax from his ground or salvage from his stores and his animals is going to become as valuable as gold dust. The farmer has never been so vital and as the film says, it is a farmer's duty to the nation to make sure that his farm is protected. So how does the farmer protect his farm from nuclear war. We know it's unlikely he'll be dealing with blast and fire. It's the cities and the military targets which will have those things to contend with. Not peaceful farms, not remote countryside. But he will be faced, of course, with lethal fallout. That's the farmer's main concern after the nuclear war. So how can he shield his animals and his crops and his workers from it? From this unpredictable killer which will go wherever the weather takes it. Well, some of the advice from this film is similar to that of Protect and Survive. The farmers are told to pile earth and sandbags around the doors and windows to get supplies of food and water in. The main difference, of course, is that the farmer may also use bales of hay to give added protection to the house. And of course, he's not just defending the family home, He also needs to build and then fortify a shelter for his workers and, of course, for his crops and for his animals. Now, after the bomb drops, we all have to take shelter for at least 48 hours until the 
highest level of threat from the fallout has dropped. But who's going to tend to the animals during those 40 hours? Here's some advice from the film. For the first 48 hours after fallout had come down, you would be confined to the shelter of your own house and so be unable to get to your cows. So that they could be milked and fed during this time, it would be best to rig up a shelter in your cow house that you or one of your men could use. If you couldn't do this, then your cows should be milked out before you go to shelter and left with some hay and water. So if you've ever watched the Protect and Survive films and felt sorry for the family who are hunkering down together for 48 hours in a tiny cramped space, spare a thought for the poor farm worker who'd be hunkering down in a barn with the cows. So not only do you need to shelter your animals, but you also need to cover up any harvested crops and also shield your farm machinery. Because that way when you leap aboard the tractor afterwards to get the farm going, feed the nuclear blasted nation, you're not going to be getting handfuls of fallout dust. So cover everything. Cows, crops, clattering, clunking combine harvesters and take cover. So the bomb has dropped, the fallout level has hopefully dropped, now the farm needs to get to work. In the ruins of cities and towns, people would, if the plans had worked, be dragging themselves to rest centres for some watery soup and a blanket, but not so in the country, where the hardy rural folk are, according to this campaign, expected to get right back to work. They've got a battered nation to feed. This campaign, uh, made in the 60s, certainly has a Second World War feel to it. You can hear the echoes of Dig for Victory ringing through it. So the first thing you'd better do is pile on some protective clothing. The countryside might look normal, but of course there could still be invisible fallout there. Luckily, farmers of all people should have sturdy boots and overalls lying around. And if even more protection is needed, well... Remember the instruction at the beginning to stuff your ears with cotton wool? So with welly boots on and cotton ears all stuffed up, you'd better go outside and release those poor cows. They've been locked up in that barn for 48 hours. It's recommended that the farmer hose them down just in case any fallout dust has settled on them. And of course, if so, that could burn their skin. In order to be doubly sure there's no fallout on them, you might even wish to clip their coats. In terms of crops, you would have gathered and shielded anything that you'd already harvested. Now, you would attend to the huge stacks of vegetables and take the outer layers and just throw them away. You can assume that fallout has settled on them. So throw away the outer layers and anything which has been tucked away inside should be okay. Nonetheless, you would of course peel and wash anything thoroughly. When it comes to things like cabbage, you would peel and discard all the outer layers. Uh, Potatoes are your safest bet because they don't absorb radiation as much as other vegetables. Nonetheless, you of course would have to wash and peel them. No more baked potatoes with a nice thick skin on them. Everything has to be washed and peeled. And of course, food is all important now. So what about the animals who have not survived? Obviously, even if Morrissey doesn't like to hear it, dead animals are, of course, used as food. But can you do that after a nuclear war? What about the animals who have not survived? Can you eat them? 
Remember that the country is likely to be starving, maybe even slipping into famine soon enough. If there are dead animals lying around in their hundreds and thousands, can they be used for meat? Can you very easily discard them, given how many starving people there will soon be? And those who have survived, those animals who have survived, what do you feed them on? Here's a clip which answers some of those very difficult questions. New growth would be safer, so if you could manage it, contaminated grazing should be cut. Then cart it to a place where humans and animals cannot get to it and leave it for the radioactivity to decay. Burning would be of no use because the radioactivity would not be destroyed, but it might be used for silage if the contamination was not too high. If it could not be cut, it would be better to graze it with animals other than dairy cows. Although the animals would pick up radioactivity, this would be concentrated in their offal and bones, and their flesh would probably be safe to eat. Even so, great care would have to be taken before the carcasses were used for human food. They should be bled thoroughly, and the offal and bones discarded. We all know that famous scene in Threads, where Ruth and Jimmy's friend, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, are starving, and they're on the moors above Sheffield, and in their absolute hunger delirium they just grab a dead sheep they slit it open and they just shove their faces into it they are so hungry even though they're wondering well what's killed this sheep sheep don't die of cold ruth says so what has killed the sheep probably radiation but they're so near delirious with hunger that they simply don't care they take the risk so we find ourselves discussing carcasses and bones fallout and famine even though at the start of this civil defence booklet everything was relatively normal and the farmer was assured that things looked the same, the hills were still green, the house still standing, the family still alive, the workers still in their place, they hadn't all scarpered either. This campaign shows that the farmhands all still keen and eager to get to work. But of course, as we know, the very simple terror of the hydrogen bomb is that It renders everywhere dangerous. There is simply nowhere safe, not even the most remote, luscious green valley, which has never seen a scrap of traffic or a whiff of pollution. It may be totally untainted and untouched, but the bomb can still get there. And soon, the fact that everything looks the same might become nothing but a torment. At least an urban family will be in no doubt as to their predicament. But a rural household might go into some kind of denial. Look that the sun is still shining and the trees still rustle. We've survived and we'll be okay. And then you start to sicken and wither and drop because the wind has brought death to you. And what of those lucky ones who are untouched by fallout? The wind can't take it everywhere, I suppose. So maybe you've dodged the blast and you've evaded the sick wind. You've got your home and clean water. You get plenty of rosy apples and red meat and creamy milk. Well, you can expect a chap on the door soon enough. People will come calling who want a bit of what you have and you better be prepared to share or they might just forget their manners. And when they batter your door down, kick your head in and take what they need in a frenzy of nuclear mental breakdown and starvation, your last thought as you lie dying in your field might be But look, everything looks just the same. 
that's this week's podcast finished. Um, if you want to discuss it with me or ask any questions, you can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on my nuclear Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain, or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. Thank you for sticking with me, even though I gave myself a few weeks off. Believe me, I did need it. <laughs> Thank you especially to my patrons who support this podcast on Patreon. They give me their hard-earned cash each week, so I'm very grateful that they stuck with me, even though I gave myself this wee holiday. So I'm going to give them all a shout-out, say thank you to each of them, and I'll do it over the gentle sound of cows mooing and dogs barking. And I'll be back next Sunday with another episode of The Atomic Hobo. Thank you all for listening, and thank you especially to my patrons, Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damian Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Gordy McNair, Jonathan Avalins, Kieran Taylor, Lane Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Richard Grundy, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace, and Wynne Grant.